Welcome to the BG Podcast, conversations at the intersection of business, community, and public policy from the Austin metro and around Texas. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com slash podcast and on iTunes and Google Play. Hello, this is AJ Bingham, CEO of the Bingham Group. Our guest today is Erica Greeter, Houston Chronicle Metro columnist. Welcome to the show, Erica. Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks, thanks for coming on. I want, I'd like to say as background, Erica and I have known each other for quite a while. Um, we first met on the board of the LBJ Future Forum. Which is a great policy group. Great policy group, yeah. And at the time, you were a senior writer for the Texas Monthly mm-hmm. covering the Texas House, Texas House and Senate, correct? Yeah, although I did stop covering the Texas Senate for a while. Um, and oh, I, what happened there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I we're going right into it. Um, well, it was during the 2015 legislative session, and that was the first session we had after the 2014 midterm elections. Mm-hmm. And so there was a new uh, lieutenant governor in the Senate after 12 years of the of the previous uh, incumbent, David Dewhurst. We had Dan Patrick as lieutenant governor, and Governor Patrick had made some changes to the rules in the Senate. So the Senate it just changed the order of proceedings on the floor so much that I would go to the Senate and I would say like, what am I doing here? There's no debates on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just went to the Texas no House. No news to cover. Well, there there things there would, things would happen. Was there was news, but I was just like, look, this is going to be sent to the House, and the House is going to you know, uh, uh, cooler heads will prevail in the Texas House. Um, so I eventually just just stayed in the Texas House for mm-hmm. the rest of that session. So jumping backwards for a minute, sure. give people let's give us a little more of your background. So we first met; it was Texas Monthly, but you'd also sure, had so some other writing experiences, right? So prior some to smaller that, publications, I smaller think. obscure publications. Yeah. So prior to that, I had been in the Southwest correspondent for the Economist for about six years. I've heard about that one. Yeah, it's a great it's a great publication, and it's certainly timely these days when we're kind of all sort of focused on international news as well as state and local and national news. Um, but I was there from 2007 to 2012, based in Austin as the Southwest correspondent. So that was a great job because it was headquartered here in the state, but it was traveling Texas to the surrounding states, Southeast, Midwest, Southwest, um, and sort of seeing what was going on in various various places. Mm-hmm. And you're a Texas girl? I'm from San Antonio. San Antonio. Yeah. Military? Yeah. Military? Yeah, we have that in common. Air Force kid, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. there you go. And it's, I, well, it's, it's still April, so it's still the month of the military child, so that's the. I uh, didn't know that. All right. Good I'm for us. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. I'll do that. All right. And then uh, Columbia for college. Columbia for college. University. Philosophy major, so okay. I put that degree to good use. Yeah, well, how, yeah so what, just what was the, quick, quickly, what was the path to journalism? Oh, I kind of um, bumbled into it after college. I um, went and I worked as a bartender in a fishing lodge in Alaska for a summer, and then mm-hmm. I came back and I worked for the business school at the University of Texas for about a year as a staff writer there. Then I went to New York and was doing consulting, and then while consulting, I applied for an internship at The Economist while reading The Economist of work. So, yeah. No, I mean, this is funny. You know, there's been a word of pass to get to job. So, yeah. so getting into it, I want to first start talking about the Texas legislature. We're sure. about 28, I think at the time of this recording, we're 28 days from Sani Die, which is the end of the regular session. That's right. And just, uh, you know, there definitely have been some changes um, at, at the House and Senate going into this year, on the leadership side, right. the House, and then just overall composition of members coming out of the last election cycle, midterm elections. Right. So just what have you seen, the start of the House, what have you seen just with new leadership under Speaker, Speaker Bonin, and then just some of the votes, the key votes that have been taken procedurally, based on your past experience and you know the big like the budget getting the budget out fast or sure else. yeah so i think that i would say there's you know starting the session there were two key changes that happened to the texas legislature in last november so the first was that the midterm elections happened in november 6 2018 and democrats picked up two seats in the texas senate and uh, more consequentially 12 seats in the texas house so what that means is that you come back to the texas uh, this year's this biennial regular session which started in january 
uh, with Democrats still in the minority, but closer to the majority, so able to play a critical role on certain pieces of legislation that don't hold the Republican caucus together, but also with the prospects of Democrats coming back in 2021, having made even further gains, possibly even retaking the Texas House. In addition to that change, the next major change you have is the um, election of a new Speaker of the House for the first time in uh, 10 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Strauss, the previous Speaker of the House, was the longest-serving Republican Speaker in state history. Uh, in November 2018, about a week after the midterm elections, Dennis Bonin, a longtime state representative from uh, Angleton, you know, announced, held a press conference, kind of on short notice, and just said, I've won the Speaker's race, it's over. And he, he had the votes to become the next Speaker. My job. Yeah. <laughs> and if you know Bonin at all, that makes sort of, sense. it's sort of the thing Bonin would <laughs> Or I do. guess a uh, gavel drop in this case. Yeah, gavel drop, exactly. So he just you know, gaveled that quickly, uh, you know, took a few questions. Um, and people, there had been at that point sort of a lot of Republicans who had put their names in for Speaker who were rumored to be considering filing for Speaker. And, uh, you know, as Bonin said, he had the vote. So it was sort of that was one done. He was elected unanimously. And, um, I think that, so you still have the same sort of uh, governor and lieutenant governor. The other two of the big three are unchanged from 15 and 17 sessions. Uh, governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Uh, but in Bonin, you know, he's still a Republican. He was a key lieutenant for Joe Strauss. So in that sense, there's a certain continuity of leadership in the House. Um, but we've seen Bonin sort of take a very sort of, um, I, I guess you could characterize his approach as like, aggressive inclusivity uh, and collegiality. I mean, he really is an institutionalist. He cares about the House as a body law. He's been there since he was, I mean, for 20 years as a, as a legislator. But even prior to that, this is kind of funny, he was a student, he went to college at St. Edwards in Austin. Mm-hmm. And while in college, uh, he served, He like had a part-time job as like a, a guard in like the Texas House. So he really cares about the Texas House quite a bit. And it's very important to him that, you know, members be treated fairly, that they would be fair to each other, that they be respectful and cordial to their colleagues, that they work well together, that everyone's talents kind of get a, a chance to be heard, that everyone gets to be put in a role where they can do good work for their district. So that's kind of been the, the tone of the House thus far this session. Gotcha. And then, really quick, I want to actually take a step back to local races. So what are you seeing in Houston? I mean, we, we oh. kind of covered some of the Houston, uh, actually, I mean, pulling back, Houston, in Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas all have mayoral elections. This this year, yeah. This year, yeah. this mo- next month. Well, in Dallas is this month. Uh, in Houston, the mayoral election is in, in November. November, okay. Yeah, and I'm following But up Dallas up. and San Antonio are coming up. Yeah, well, I mean, Dallas is for sure. I've been following Dallas and Houston a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas, I mean, that, I think it'll go to a runoff. There's so many candidates in the race, and it seems like none of them are going to emerge with an outright majority. So there'll probably be a runoff. Um, and uh, to be honest, in Dallas, I'm hard to press to say who the front runners even are at this point. Um, in Houston, there's kind of an interesting, it's sort of a three-way race between Mayor Turner, Sylvester Turner, a longtime legislator, and the incumbent, um, Bill King, a Republican who had challenged Turner previously and went to the runoff, and then this guy, Tony Busby, who is sort of a... He's the power, he's a, is he Perry's attorney? Well, so it's interesting because, and to be honest, I'm not saying this to, to sound uh, evasive, but I, I'm, I'm still, myself as a journalist, somewhat perplexed by his political valence, so to speak, and I think... Um, Others are. I mean, he held a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton in 16, but also for Donald Trump. Uh, he was Rick Perry's lawyer, but he's considered a Democrat. So he's and he's and it's a nonpartisan office, of course. So he's kind of campaigning not in a partisan way, um, but sort of as the sort of you know brash challenger to Mayor Turner. So that should mm-hmm. be an interesting, interesting race, and it'll have you know some time to, to develop. Interesting. And then on the national stage, we're looking at Texas. Is in tw- you know, 2020 is right on the corner. Right around the and corner. Texas, can't yeah, wait. I mean, More I'm elections. Sure, I'm sure you can't wait. Yeah. I guess, I mean, we all have so much fun. I follow, your, I follow your Twitter daily. And, um, so just is Texas on the map? I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, and as I say, in the sense yeah. of we, Texas, people realize is always the map in terms of donor base for yes. the Republicans and Democrats. Yes. Um, but in terms of you know, in counting, you know, that's 
I mean, it is factoring in. You have you know two candidates, two presidential candidates from, uh, Texas, from Texas, Beto O'Rourke and Julian mm-hmm. Castro. Yeah. Um, but is Texas really on the map? I think it absolutely is. And you know, we're seeing a lot of evidence. We actually just today, this morning, I'm not sure when this podcast will be released, but we're talking on, uh, on Monday. And um, there was a new poll from Emerson College today showing Trump against hypothetical 2020 nominees in Texas. So I think it was, you know, he, he was slightly, I mean, he was in a tie with Biden, statistically with Joe Biden, who announced this past week for president. He was also in a tie, statistically speaking, with Bernie Sanders. Um, and so you think of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders is sort of, both have very high name ID. They're both well-known to voters in Texas, um, but they kind of represent opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. Um, also basically tied, I think, with Beto O'Rourke. Um, he was leading in polls against uh, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, but those two are, of course, less well-known to Texas voters because they're not from Texas and they haven't been vice president for eight years. Um, so that was, you know, and we've seen previous polling showing that, showing Trump has been underwater in Texas for most of his presidency thus far. Um, any polls, I mean, it, he polls, it's, it's a tie, like according to polling thus far, early polling to be clear, but still a tie. And you're seeing signs from Democrats that, as you say, the state's been sort of historically a place where donors, you know, there, there are donors in both parties here. So candidates come to talk to donors, but they're increasingly coming to talk to voters also. So last week, for example, they held the um, She the Presidential, uh, She the People Presidential Forum at Texas Southern in Houston. Mm-hmm. So it was the first pre- ever presidential forum focused on uh, women of color, mm-hmm. the policy priorities thereof. So eight of the candidates come, probably more would have come, but they had you know space for eight speakers to come. So uh, Mayor Castro and Beto O'Rourke were there. You had Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Kame, Bernie Sanders. Um, and so it was a sort of robust forum for a full day with you know women of color being most of the voters in the audience and not being able to ask questions of the presidential candidates. And that's the kind of thing we haven't seen, people our age, yeah. haven't seen in Texas presidential elections. So it's, yeah. it's a different kind of cycle. Anything a factor too, just in the last election cycle, the last presidential election cycle, you saw kind of women, women in color, especially African-American women, how much of a voter, voter block they made for the Democratic Party. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's more of acknowledgement of, look, these are, you know, you get, and at least within that community, just looking kind of, a, kind of there's been a sort of historic frustration of this lack of uh, almost like taking it for granted with votes. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. And I think, you know, one thing that kind of struck me at this forum was that, like, uh, you know, I think by consensus that Elizabeth Warren was considered the winner of the forum, they weren't debating directly at the, and the candidates were, it was sort of sequential. So one candidate had half an hour, the next candidate would, would be talked for half an hour in a moderated conversation. Um, but I think uh, Senator Warren from Massachusetts was kind of seen as the person who really stood out. I mean, she got a like, great response from the audience, standing ovation at one point. Um, but what struck me too is that the audience is really good, right? To me, like I would rate the winner as, as the audience. I mean, the questions were good from the questioners in the audience. There were questions we don't hear necessarily uh, asked often, at, you know, for example, the national televised debates. Um, and they were just about kind of core concerns, policy priorities we haven't heard discussed that often by candidates from either party. Um, what kind of questions were these are top two questions that you think you caught, you caught your attention? Well, you know, a lot of questions were asked about criminal justice reform, uh, which is a major issue. A lot of questions were, were asked about like labor conditions. Um, so I remember one question was asked by a woman who was with the National Domestic uh, Workers Association. She was asking about working conditions for domestic workers, which is, you know, a, a, lar- a lot of people. I mean, it's a disproportionately uh, women of color in that industry. And for th- there's been a lot of discussion on the left about, you know, wages, working conditions, paid sick leave, and so on. But to hear somebody, to a presidential candidate, say, what, are your, what is your plan for workers in this industry, um, and, you know, to improve our, our working conditions and our living conditions and our standard of living? I mean, that's a, a question I haven't heard, I think, before of a presidential candidate, mm-hmm. so. Gotcha. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we're still, it's, it's it, the cycle's picking up, so it's still a ways away. Ways it is picking up, and we're still getting candidates coming in every every few days. Yeah, I mean, so then lastly, too, just because it's your world, what, 
if anything keeps you up at night as it relates to politics, and it could be national or the state. I mean, oh, I don't know if anything surprises you because it yeah. surprise you anymore. It's kind of, I mean, really, kicking in the era we're in. What does anything keep? I mean, I guess the, the news like more stability, where it's just, where am I going to cover? What keeps me up at night is just my sense of excitement about all the opportunities and potential. And she's twirling in her seat as she's saying this. She's actually very excited about this. <laughs> well, I think just, you know, as, as 2018 was for me as a Texan, you know, as a journalist who's been covering the state for 10 years in politics, I have never seen an election cycle as energized as that one by the voters, right? And as journalists, I think a lot of people come to you, like your friends, people who don't work in politics or media, kind of come to you and ask questions about politicians and candidates. Do you, do you have any thoughts on this person's record? Have you met this person? Have you interviewed them? But questions too about process. How do I, how do I host a town hall? How do I register to vote? How do I become a voter registrar? And so... I've been trying to answer these questions as best as I can, um, but it's just like, I, for, for years, the state's been known as like a non-voting state. We're notoriously a low turnout state, right, and a low registration state, and we still are relative to other states, um, but that, that's definitely changing. I think that we'll see that change continue in 2020, so I'm excited to have all these Texans now uh, joining you and me and uh, your, your listeners in the sort of yeah. excitement that is electoral politics. They need to hold it to November. That's the thing. Like, don't lose steam and make sure to vote at the top ticket and go down to the bottom ticket, too, because those municipal elections. Oh, yeah. Local I, elections. I, you know, yeah. A lot, as, as a lobbyist, I'll say this. You know, the, your, those local races affect a lot of things people don't realize. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, think like things that affect you directly in your community. Like, mm-hmm. I, I also, roads, r- roads, buildings. yeah, <laughs> roads, buildings, schools, teachers, mm-hmm. teacher pay, retirement. I mean, yeah, that, like local officials have a tremendous impact on your day to day life. All right, hashtag vote. Hashtag vote, please vote. Right. <laughs> Erica, thank you for your time. Love to have you back on the show. Post session, uh, get your take on how everything ended up, and then we can do some uh, pre. Uh, pre-2020 predictions as, as things start rounding up a little bit in the, in the fall. Absolutely. And for those of you working session, good luck. Hang in there less than a month ago now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right there. So it's right there. Hopefully no special. <laughs> Absolutely. Knock, knock on wood. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's BG podcast. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com podcast and iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe to stay current on future posts.